I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the end of the court's term, the big cases the justices will hear in the fall. We will interview our boss, John Malcolm, and we'll grade our newest justice on his performance so far. So before we dig into what was perhaps the most anticipated decision of the term, we'd like to wish a very happy birthday to Justices Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor. They both celebrated birthdays in June. You know, interestingly, a majority of the justices were born in the summer. Kennedy, Thomas, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Gorsuch. Uh, five justices, that's enough to win a case. Mm-hmm. So the justices are officially out on their summer vacation. There were no retirement announce- announcements, no last-minute oral arguments, and to quote a young John Roberts, the Constitution is safe for the summer. So on the last day of the term, the court issued its long-awaited decision in the Trinity Lutheran case. This is the case that involved a church applying for a grant to resurface its playground with recycled tires. So what do playgrounds and tires have to do with religious freedom? Well, a lot, apparently. The state of Missouri had denied Trinity Lutheran's application for a grant, citing a provision of its state constitution that prohibits states from uh, state funds from going to churches. Trinity Lutheran sued and argued that this that excluding it from the grant program solely because it's a church violates the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution. And this week, the Supreme Court agreed. The court took the case uh, over a year ago in January 2016, and then waited to schedule or- oral argument until after Justice Gorsuch had been confirmed. While the court ended up ruling in favor of Trinity Lutheran 7-2 with two of the uh, liberals, Justices Kagan and Breyer, were still glad that Gorsuch was able to participate in the case because he wrote an important concurring opinion that made it clear that this case should not be read narrowly to apply only to playgrounds uh, or only in cases involving children's health and safety. So Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion, and it it holds that the government can't force a religious organization to choose between its religious beliefs and receiving a public benefit. Essentially, religious organizations shouldn't have to check their beliefs at the door in order to compete with secular organizations for state funds. He also addressed Missouri's argument that it had excluded Trinity Lutheran to avoid violating the Establishment Clause. Roberts acknowledged that there is some what's called play in the joints between what's permitted by the Establishment Clause on the one hand, but not required uh, by the Free Exercise Clause. But Roberts concluded that the state went too far here and it had clearly infringed on Trinity Lutheran's free exercise. So this was the basis of Sonia Sotomayor's dissent, which was joined by Justice Ginsburg. In her opinion, giving Trinity Lutheran state funds uh, violates the Establishment Clause because, as she says, when a government funds a house of worship, it underwrites this religious exercise. So she says that this decision makes the the so-called separation of church and state a, quote, constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment. But the famous wall of separation line that comes from Thomas Jefferson's uh, letter to the Danbury Baptist is not part of the Constitution, although liberals like to write it into there. It's also interesting um, in that letter... Uh, He was responding to the congregation because they were complaining to him, afraid that the state, uh, Connecticut, I think, was going to um, infringe on their religious liberty. Uh, And he was assuring them that uh, because there was this wall, that wasn't going to happen. And so it's really ironic that the left tries to use it to keep religion out of the public square. Indeed. So listeners might be wondering why this case was such a big deal and how it could apply in other contexts. Well, the Supreme Court has already instructed lower courts in a few cases to take a look, another look at their decisions ruling against the use of school vouchers at religious schools. So this decision could be great news for the school choice movement. Um, Another opinion or another case the justices have just agreed to hear uh, could also provide some good news for the conservative movement. 
Um, this is Masterpiece Cake Shop. So, you know, James Madison wrote in his essay on property that conscience is the most sacred of property. Um, and the court will decide in the fall whether we still believe that as Americans or not. So this is one of the cases dealing with bakers, florists, and photographers who don't want to participate um, and use their services and their talents to participate in same-sex weddings. So this case deals with a baker, Jack Phillips. He's the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. Um, he refused to sell, um, to bake a rainbow cake and to sell it to a couple of gentlemen who came, came in for their wedding. You know, he said, I'm happy to bake you a birthday cake, sell you cookies and brownies, but I just can't do a wedding cake. Um, he says when he creates his cakes, he feels like he's participating in celebration. And if you actually go to his um, shop, and there's some clips online, um, what he makes is really um, looks like art. He's very detailed. They are masterpieces, indeed. They are. They're masterpieces. <laughs> um, so, but he was sued for violating Colorado's public accommodation law in the lower the state courts found against him. Um, so now he's appealed to the Supreme Court, and after a long time uh, of considering the case, they've agreed uh, to take it. So the gist of this case, um, it's ultimately about whether the government can force him and people like him to use their artistic talents um, to do things like create cakes for same-sex weddings, when doing so violates his religious beliefs. Um, it's it's interesting to point out that um, it's not just same-sex wedding cakes that he won't make. He won't make cakes for bachelor parties. Um, he won't ca make cakes depicting ghosts or demons. He doesn't want to participate in Halloween either. And, you know, that's that's his call. Um, it's also important to note that there's an exceedingly small number of people who are conscientious objectors to this. Um, so this leads us to believe that this is really about crushing dissent, like any dissenters, because these gentlemen could have walked out the door and probably into five or ten more bakeries down the street, um, and any one of them would have been happy to bake this cake. And as we've seen with a lot of these other cases, usually if when these people are, um, you know, say we don't want to bake your cake, here's somebody else that'll do it, a lot of times they get their product for free because um, the other person gets gets good press out of it. Um, so, so I yeah. would I would point out that this is going to be. Of, of course, we're going to be watching Justice Kennedy as always. He didn't retire, uh, at least not yet. Um, so he's going to be on the court, presumably for uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And this is really we're going to see the collision of two areas of the law that he cares deeply about. On the one hand, he's been the architect of the constitutional protections for the gay rights movement, but on the other hand, he's a strong proponent of free speech and religious freedom. So I think this may be a harder call for him. This may be a harder case for him. To, to decide than, than some of his other cases in the, the gay rights area. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. Um, next, we're going to interview our boss, John Malcolm, about the travel ban case. So John Malcolm is a vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center here at Heritage. Uh, before that, he was a federal prosecutor. He served in the criminal division at the Department of Justice, and he fought pirates. In the, <laughs> at the MPAA. Yes, in the movie <laughs> business. Um, John, thanks for sitting down with us. Great to be with you. So the Supreme Court announced that it will hear the case challenging Pre President Trump's executive order limiting travel to the U.S. from six terrorist havens. The lower courts had enjoined the administration from implementing the executive order, but now the Supreme Court has stayed most of that injunction until it hears the case on its merits. So, John, can you get us up to speed on what the Supreme Court actually did? Sure. Well, this is certainly very good news for the president. Uh, so two 
Circuit Courts of Appeals, the Fourth Circuit uh, reviewing a case out of Maryland and the Ninth Circuit reviewing a case out of Hawaii uh, had uh, upheld nationwide injunctions that had been issued by the district courts uh, preventing the implementation from any parts of the president's revised uh, immigration executive order from going into effect. Even though there was no split in the circuits, the Supreme Court reached out and said, we want to have briefing on an expedited schedule. They received the briefs from all those parties, and they very quickly decided to uh, to hear that case. Uh, they obviously felt that this was a matter of extreme national security. It touched on separation of powers uh, and that there couldn't be this kind of delay that the court needed to weigh in on it. They decided not to have an expedited uh, hearing on the matter. They're going to hear an oral argument shortly after they reconvene at the beginning of October, but they did lift the vast majority of the injunctions that had been uh, imposed by the lower courts. I think that was very, very good news for the president. So what the president's executive order did essentially was to say that there was going to be a 90-day suspension of travel uh, from six countries, specifically Sudan, Syria, Iran, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen, uh, in order to make sure that there was proper vetting going on from those countries, that there was going to be a cap of 50,000 refugees admitted uh, to the country this year, and that there was going to be a 120-day suspension of admittees under our refugee uh, program. And what the, uh, what the Supreme Court did was to say, one, we're going to hear this case. It was a procurium decision. So all nine of them uh, agreed in an unsigned order to hear this case. And they said, we're going to lift these injunctions, except for one small part. The challengers in Hawaii uh, were individuals who said that they wanted to have close family members come into the country. And also the state, which said the University of Hawaii had admitted students from these six countries who would no longer be able to travel. The Supreme Court said, as to these plaintiffs and people who are similarly situated, they may be able to come into uh, the country so long as uh, there is you know, a bona fide, documented uh, reason that establishes a very close connection to this country. They can petition to come into the country, which, by the way, uh, the executive order already permitted case-by-case -case waivers. So this really may not be a change from what was in the executive order. But other than that, uh, they would have to wait for resolution um, from the Supreme Court before coming into the country. Um, so tell us a little bit about Justice Thomas's partial concurrence and partial dissent. Yeah, so that was that was certainly good news for the president too. Uh, he did write uh, a partial concurrence uh, and partial dissent that was joined by Justices Gorsuch and uh, and Samuel Alito, in which he said, "Look." The government has made a very, very strong showing here that they are highly likely to prevail at the end of the day in this case. And therefore, we should have lifted the injunctions in toto and allowed the president's executive order to go into effect uh, completely. Uh, and all that uh, all that is going to happen as a result of the partial lifting of the injunctions is this may invite litigation between now and the time we resolve the case that could be needlessly avoided if we just allowed the executive order to go into effect. So what do you think is the administration's strongest argument here? Well, there is – they have a few arguments. One is that courts and particularly the Supreme Court has traditionally shown extreme deference to uh, the executive branch when it comes to national security issues. Congress has plenary authority uh, to deal with immigration issues under the Constitution and there is a provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act in which they specifically delegate to the president the ability to suspend the admission of aliens from certain countries for whatever period of time he deems necessary if he thinks that not doing so – 
would be detrimental to the national security interests of the United States. So he has the normal uh, authority that is granted to the executive in order to protect our homeland and to deal with national security interests and a specific delegation of that authority when it comes to immigration from Congress. Uh, as well, the Supreme Court, going back to a case called Klein Deeds versus Mandel in 1972, said, look, when we are talking about immigration issues and the president is making a discretionary call or an executive branch official is making an executive uh, a discretionary call, so long as that decision is facially legitimate and has bona fide reasons uh, to support uh, that order, court should not look behind that order to try to find some hidden intent or to weigh uh, you know, the merits of different, uh, different parties. And I think that's exactly what the lower courts did here. I think that they reached behind the language of the executive order, which, by the way, was religious neutral when it comes to religion, uh, in order to determine, uh, you know, in their view, that there was some religious animus on behalf of, on behalf of uh, or on the part of Donald Trump based on some tweets he's made and some <laughs> statements by, you know, campaign surrogates during the heat of battle of a presidential campaign. Yeah. What do you make of the, um, the lower court factoring in the uh, Twitter comments and uh, comments on the campaign trail into their rulings. I, I think it was dramatic overreaching, and I really think that that these judges and they weren't unanimous. I mean, the lower court opinions and Fourth Circuit had you know split uh, split. There, there were some judges who dissented from this, but I think that they in essence joined the resist uh, the resist movement. I mean, the advocates were asked during oral argument, "Look, if President Bill Clinton or President Barack Obama had issued this executive order, would you be able to?" challenge the legitimacy of that order. And they said, no, you know, this was really just about Donald Trump and the fact that he may have uh, uh, typed in the dead of night some ill-considered tweets. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, even though this is uh, neutral as to religions on its face, even though it only applies to six countries out of 50 majority Muslim countries, even though those six countries had been previously designated as uh, safe havens for terrorists or countries of concern by Congress and executive branch officials in the Obama administration, those judges were going to say, oh, well, we really know what this is all about. This is the camel's nose under the tent in terms of a, a Muslim ban. <laughs> so what's your prediction for how things are going to go? Well, I think it's going to go well for the president. The fact that they reached out and said, you know, we have binding precedent here. I, I mentioned this Klein Dietz versus Mandel case. That was reaffirmed just a couple of years ago in a case called Kerry versus Din. And I think that they are going to eventually slap down uh, the lower courts and uphold the president's authority. Do I think it will be unanimous? Perhaps not. But I think that's what they're going to do. Now, one argument that the court has addressed the parties or asked the parties to address is the 90-day time period will run by the time the court hears oral argument. Uh, so they might uh, make an argument that the issue is now moot. I don't think the court is going to do that in part because some of the injunctions are still in place. The 120-day period uh, for the refugee suspension, uh, will you know that will still be running. Uh, the 50,000 uh, refugee cap, which has been challenged, that will still be in effect. So I, I don't think the court will find the case moot. I think they will decide it on the merits, and I think the president's likely to prevail. Well, thanks, John. Um, next up, we're going to uh, give Justice Gorsuch a grade on his performance thus far. 
And we'd love to get your input as well, John. Absolutely. So we had high hopes for Justice Gorsuch, and so far we are not disappointed. He made a splash in dissents from the court's decision not to decide the merits of cases, including the concealed carry permit restrictions case out of California, and also one from Arkansas dealing with how states list non-biological parents on the birth certificates of the children of same-sex couples. So his first majority opinion shows he is committed to careful statutory interpretation, and his concurrence in Trinity Lutheran made it clear that religious freedom applies everywhere and not just on the playground. He wrote separately seven times in his two months on the court. By comparison, it took Justice Kagan two years to write as many concurrences. So um, thus far, um, when looking at Justice Gorsuch's voting patterns, he seems uh, most closely to be voting in line with Justice Thomas, which is which a we are really sign. thrilled about. Um, yes, you can't get better than that. So um, we talked about Gorsuch's maiden opinion before um, Henson v. Santander Consumer USA, where he gave us um, an idea of how he views the proper role of the judiciary when he said it is to quote apply, not amend, the work of the people's representatives. Um, he affirmed this again in his first dissent, um, which was great. Justice Thomas joined it in Perry v. Merit Systems Protection Board, where he chided the majority for tweaking a statute to make it more workable. Um, and he said, quote, if a statute needs repair, there's a constitutionally prescribed way to do it. It's called legislation. It's a way to make our hearts flutter over here at Heritage. <laughs> um, and then, as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, he dissented in Pavan v. Smith, um, and it was a per curiam decision uh, where the court summarily reversed the Arkansas Supreme Court and held that uh, Arkansas's birth certificate scheme violates the court's holding in Obergefell, um, the same-sex marriage case, because it does not compel the state to issue birth certificates that name both spouses in a same-sex marriage. Um, Gorsuch, joined by Thomas and Alito, dissented, saying that the summary reversal was an inappropriate way to essentially decide um, that a state birth registration scheme based on biology is unconstitutional under Obergefell. So I would say Justice Gorsuch gets an A-plus for his two, uh, first two months on the court. Or maybe an A-plus asterisk like they give out at George Mason Law. It's like a, <laughs> if you're like super, super good. I, uh, that's A-plus, plus, plus, plus. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm holding out the asterisk until next term. But we certainly hope to see more of his brand of conservatism in the future. So we're going to wrap up now with a round of Supreme Trivia, Summer Vacation Edition, where we're going to try to stump our boss, John Malcolm. Dumb dude. <laughs> yeah. This could be dangerous. Yeah, are our promotions next year on the line? <laughs> are you ready? Yeah, I guess. As ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> First question. Which justice spends his summers touring the United States in an RV? Clarence Thomas does that, and uh, and it's a good thing, too. He's a man of the people. That's correct. Clarence Thomas and his wife, Jenny, like to spend their summers traveling the country and uh, visiting with the people, and they, they often park their RV in the Walmart parking lots of America. I know, just as Thomas has said, um, people come up to him all the time and be like, does anyone ever tell you you look like Clarence Thomas? <laughs> he just kind of laughs and uh, nods. Um, okay, second question. Which justice has spent many summers teaching a constitutional law class in Austria? I think that's it. I mean, a lot of them travel overseas, but I think it's Anthony Kennedy who goes to, uh, to Austria. That's right. Um, Justice Kennedy is a faculty member at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge Law School. Um, his affinity for foreign cultures, unfortunately, sometimes seeps into his work <laughs> at the court. <laughs> Third question. Which justice spends summers at his family's vacation home on a Caribbean island? Wow. Uh, hmm. 
Not sure. I'll go with Breyer. That is correct. Breyer, who is the richest of the Supreme Court justices, is married to the daughter of a British lord. And one summer, a machete-wielding man broke into their home on the island and demanded, according to their gardener, demanded money, money, money. Uh, He has the worst luck. Breyer does have pretty bad luck from bicycle accidents to when his cell phone went off during oral argument earlier this year. He has a reputation as a bit of an absent-minded professor. (laughs) Okay. He was a professor of mine. I can I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's great. Okay, final question. Which chief justice wrote a note to another justice explaining that if it was November, he would dissent from that justice's majority opinion, but since it was June, he would join it? Hmm. Well, I guess I'm going to have to settle for three out of four. I'll go with Rehnquist. Yes, that's That's correct. correct. Wow. um, There's this uh, note that has been uh, all over Twitter. Um, Justice Rehnquist wrote, Dear Thurgood, referring to Thurgood Marshall, if this were November rather than June, I would prepare a masterfully crafted dissenting opinion exposing the fallacies of your preemption discussion. Since it is June, however, I join. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this perception that the justices rush to meet uh, their end of term deadlines. That's proof positive. <laughs> so they can uh, get out get out of town by the 4th of July. But we do not approve of this. <laughs> well, thanks to our guest, John Malcolm, and you got four out of four, so good job. Uh, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tiffany H. Bates and at H. Slattery. 